0: Is this
1: working? Okay, so I've been asked to um, talk about Cook, Eat, Learn while we're solving our technology issues. Um, This morning's topic was caring for your nutrition in a busy life in honor of our (laughs) residents. And the food was a slightly different menu. Um, This was brought to you by the Lebanon Water Department. (laughs) So... (laughs) It's, a, it's an E. coli-free breakfast. Um, and the trivia question was from our um, topic last week, which was heart-healthy diets. And our question was, name an element of a heart-healthy diet. Um, there were four people who entered. Um, <laughs> and picked at random is um, Kayla Jester, who said olive oil. Is she here? OK, so come down. And um, to go with your olive oil, is some balsamic vinegar and a set of Mediterranean diet recipes. (laughs) Thank you.
2: Good morning. Um, welcome to our special medical round round to celebrate the annual Internal Medicine Residency Research Day. Um, it is a privilege for the Department of Medicine and me to highlight our residents' research accomplishments. And then before I introduce our first speaker, I would like to invite you all to view the posters on display in the uh, auditorium next door. And also to please join us for lunch um, to um, talk to the residents about their research. Uh, they will be on hand here at lunch. and pizza will be provided. So our first speaker is Dr. Jennifer DeMiro. Uh, She graduated from the University of Buffalo and uh, upon completion of her residency in June she will be a hospitalist in Albany and would plan for a GI fellowship. Welcome.
3: Okay.
4: Thanks and and welcome. Um, So I'm going to be presenting on my research project today, um, which is a tool for inflammatory bowel disease patients to communicate their personalized goals of therapy to their providers. The objectives today are to explain why patient's goals of therapy is a hot topic in inflammatory bowel disease, to show our approach to addressing what's most important to IBD patients, and to demonstrate our IBD patient engagement tool. But before I get started, I wanted to tell just a little story. Um, I think you all probably remember Maslow from some point in either high school or a uh, college psychology (laughs) class, in particular, his hierarchy of needs. This concept was highlighted in his 1943, A Theory of Human Motivation. This is usually represented in the shape of a pyramid with the most fundamental needs at the bottom with self-actualization at the top. The thought behind this is one must actually satisfy the one step on the bottom before ascending to higher levels. So why do we care? How does this relate to medicine? So you have a patient that's post-MI coming in for a checkup uh, and has an echo, and his echo, EF, is actually improved from when he had his MI. So we as physicians are happy. However, the patient is still having symptoms and is wondering if he'll be able to dance at his daughter's wedding, play golf again, et cetera. And what about the kidneys? have a hemodialysis patient whose labs look great after each scheduled dialysis session. However, the dialysis sessions make him sick and fatigued, and he's having trouble doing his ADLs. And what about the lungs? A patient with severe COPD is staying out of the hospital with a new inhaler regimen. Of course, then we as physicians are happy we're keeping him out of the hospital, right? But the patient still cannot walk from his couch to his kitchen without becoming shortness of breath. And finally, how does this relate to inflammatory bowel disease? So gastroenterologists tend to have a goal of luminal or histologic healing um, as... Evidence of therapy working. However, the patients seen on the right of the screen um, are actual patients from Dr. Corey Siegel, who did give us permission um, to have their pictures presented today, um, who submitted their photos on what they wanted to accomplish with therapy. And as you can see, it's not the histologic or luminal healing that's most important to them but actually being able to function and do what they enjoy most. And if this wasn't enough for you, the FDA is now saying so as well. They're doing away with the Crohn's Disease Activity Index or CDAI, which was established in 1976 and is a composite instrument that includes symptoms, uh, laboratory, as well as physical exam findings. And uh, so why do away with this? It's been used since 1976. And be, this is due to the fact that there have been ongoing studies that have demonstrated both the lack of correlation between the index scores and the presence of mucosal ulceration structural damage, as well as the lack of specificity of these indices even in the presence of IBD, with a significant overlap in scores for patients with IBD as well as IBS. And I just have below um, what the CDAI looks like. So we're actually going towards patient-reported outcomes. And what are these? They're standardized questions to monitor disease progression and the perceived benefit of treatment for patients. There are multiple PROs, and they have recently been developed to consider factors such as fatigue, depression and anxiety, and work productivity. And these have been used in multiple other chronic diseases, such as multiple sclerosis and rheumatoid arthritis for many, many years. In addition, the evaluation of new drug approval requires looking into bowel frequency and rectal bleeding for ulcerative colitis and abdominal pain and stool frequency for Crohn's disease, along with endoscopic evaluation. And I just wanted to briefly show um, the concept that the FDA wants people to use, all researchers and clinicians, to develop a patient-reported outcome. And I won't uh, go into this in much detail, but um, as you can see, there's a lot that goes into it. And they do want everybody to look into the symptom signs and aspects of function now as related to the disease. So to recap briefly, there is recent interest in patient-reported outcomes in inflammatory bowel disease Most of the effort has been to develop standardized PROs that can replace current disease activity indices and can be used to monitor patients' progress in clinical trials and in practice. So the aim was to understand what information is most important for patients uh, to report to their providers and to develop a tool that can be used to help patients and providers personalize their goals of therapy. Uh, specifically my hypothesis was that individual patients will have personalized goals of therapy beyond symptoms that may not be captured in standardized questionnaires such as PROs so the methods I used a mixed quantitative and qualitative approach and first a closed response questionnaire was formulated to capture demographics disease history IBD symptoms and to ask patients to prioritize their top three most important symptoms to control Additionally, patients were queried about the most important outcomes to achieve an IBD therapy. For example, avoiding surgery, avoiding an ostomy, quality of life, normal social life, and endoscopic healing. After pilot testing the questionnaire, it was distributed to consecutive patients at Dartmouth-Hitchcock IBD Center. After this was completed, two patient focus groups were convened and these patients were all, um, had either ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. Using a domain table to guide the conversation, patients were asked to discuss the results of the survey, give feedback on a draft patient engagement tool, and offer suggestions for optimal clinical use. So before I get into uh, the patient engagement tool, I just wanted to briefly go over some of the results. 107 patients completed the survey. 46 um, was the average age. 58% were female. And 44% had at least one operation, with 67.5% having Crohn's disease in this study. There was uniformly uh, distribution of recent disease severity, as shown by the Manitoba Index, and 19% of patients had previously been on anti-TNF therapy, with 17% currently receiving anti-TNF therapy. For results, the top three most important symptoms to control for patients were abdominal pain and diarrhea for Crohn's disease, followed by increased dual frequency, and diarrhea increased dual frequency, followed by abdominal pain for ulcerative colitis. In the PROs that the government is validating, uh, the top symptoms to control for abdominal uh, were abdominal pain and diarrhea or frequency for Crohn's disease, and diarrhea and increased stool frequency for ulcerative colitis patients. Um, so, this actually correlates pretty nicely. There's a lot of information on this slide, and what I wanted to show most was the top three outcomes that patients wanted to res- uh, t- wishes to achieve, um, that staying alive was not the most important to them. Um, And you can actually see that complete resolution of symptoms across the board was what ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease patients wanted to achieve, followed by avoiding an ostomy and avoiding surgery for Crohn's patients, and then staying alive is number three, followed by avoiding surgery in ulcerative colitis patients. So it it shows us that patients want to feel completely healthy um, and that it could potentially be safe to say that there is no point in in staying alive when their quality of life is such that they're suffering. So I just wanted to go back to Maslow um, really quickly and and show us that um, based on the results of this study, that complete resolution of symptoms, avoiding an ostomy and avoiding surgery, followed closely by staying alive, are the most important to patients. And for them to ascend towards the top of the pyramid Um, they have to complete those first. And finally, the patient engagement tool. The first question is an open-ended question um, and will be filled out by each patient prior to each office visit and asks them what is their number one concern or goal related to IBD. This is followed by another open-ended question asking if there's anything else they would like to discuss with their physician today after which they would then ask or answer uh, more objective data, such as um, abdominal pain, bleeding, et cetera, and the final question, which was brought up multiple times uh, in each uh, session, was that they would actually like to have a question asking if they would like assistance to cover their health care costs. So in conclusion, Crohn's disease patients most frequently report abdominal pain, diarrhea, and increased stool frequency as most important symptoms to control. Patients with ulcerative colitis reported diarrhea, increased stool frequency, blood and stools as most important. Complete control of symptoms was the highest priority outcome, but 20 different outcomes were rated as top three priorities to patients. Focus group participants consistently stated that the most important component on communicating those data was a free response question asking their number one concern or goal of therapy at every office visit. Based on responses, a one-page engagement tool was created and iteratively improved with patient feedback. And I'd just like to take this time to thank um, Dr. Corey Siegel. Um, he couldn't be here today since DDW is starting um, this week. Um, and then Kimberly Thompson and Damara Crate, both research coordinators that have been um, a real integral part in doing this research. Thank you.
5: If um, the, the question was framed such that um, if you couldn't achieve total symptom control, what would your priorities be? How do you think that would uh, affect your um, <coughs> metrics?
4: So I think knowing the patients and having seen them fill this out, I think their question would be, well, why not? Um <laughs> Um, but I think it may have changed the metrics if that were the case that they would then say most likely, uh, avoiding surgery, avoiding an ostomy, and, um, but I still think that even if that weren't the case, they probably would still want that very highly on their, their list. Well, I
5: think that was absolutely brilliant. Uh, thank you exposition on how one can quantify what is essentially unquantifiable which is feeling feelings and thoughts. It was really very, very impressive. Thank you. But one thing that was missing was what is overarching in the medical care system today, which is money. And do you have is there a way that you can blend what the patient wants with what the provider wants, the person who pays the bills, which is to spend as little money as possible. In other words, can you use this extraordinarily valuable information? To relate that to how much things cost, which when you ask the people who are the people who run the system, they don't care about all of this. they just want to keep the cost down.
4: And I think that this is a great tool for the the physicians to use as well because they're the ones that are going to have to mediate that. And so I think the the best thing that we can do with this tool is as physicians, uh, see what the patient wants, what their goals are, and what's actually feasible and the best way of getting there uh, and, and, of course, mitigating costs. Yeah. Kathy, first and then, too. Okay. Really,
5: I'm, I'm, I'm interested in whether or not you've tried it out in the
0: clinic and whether it changes the time of the visit for... Um, how the providers have
4: responded to having- So we've tried it preliminarily in the clinic with uh, Corey Siegel's patients, and we haven't found that it, it really elongates the time um, too much. Um, that being said, having worked really closely with the IBD um, physicians in particular, they do tend to spend a lot of time with their patients, um, and so I don't think that they have seen um, an increase in, in duration of office visit time. Yeah, absolutely.
5: So, in, in rheumatology and in total knee replacements, what's been problematic is that the physiologic correlates of improved improvement don't correlate very well sometimes with the patient reported outcomes. It seems to me that uh, you have some very reasonable, very concrete responses. So, if you go back to clinical trials, how many of the people that report resolution of their abdominal pain or resolution of their diarrhea still report dissatisfaction?
4: <clears throat> <laughs> that's a good question, and I don't think we have the data to to support that right now. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that's all I can really say on that. I don't really think that's out there, but it is a valid point. Um, we actually, I actually was sent. Um, a paper um, by an orthopedist on back pain um, and how they're now going towards patient-reported outcomes as opposed to some of the other uh, disease and activity indices that they've been using before, too. But I, I can't answer that question, yeah.
5: So, uh, uh, it's a great, great presentation, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the uh, clinics I work in is the Spine Center, and um, There are a lot of people who have chronic back pain without a cure. And so, and many of those people are in in the spine center. Um, And for some time now, there's been this division between thinking about what's most important to people, pain management, or being able to do stuff in Mm -hmm. life. And so we have this program called the Functional Restoration Program. And I don't know exactly how the split goes, how many pain is important, or how many is functional, though most of them are actually functionally oriented, I would say. Uh, And the people who are interested in pain go to the pain clinic, and the people who are interested in doing stuff go to the functional restoration program, where they're taught strategies to manage their chronic pain and (laughs) life. So I'm wondering, you know, the applicability of this concept, which is primarily for musculoskeletal-related issues, has a role in other organ system problems such as uh, IBD.
4: Yeah, and I think, you know, IBD is uh, very complex. There are a lot of different um, symptoms that patients can have. And, And so I think that sometimes they get to the point where, I'm sure they do with back pain as well, where it's hard for them to even leave the house. Uh, so I think that it's it's difficult sometimes. We uh, you know with chronic illnesses to get a patient even to that point where functional ability is even a goal for them, or at least a goal that they see in the near future. Um, but I think that uh, helping patients cope with their chronic illness. Um, once they achieve that, once they can achieve some sort of uh, resolution of some of their symptoms, I think is a great um, idea, and I think that a lot of the IBD physicians already help patients with that, um, and they do spend a lot of time asking how they're doing, how... Um, how they're functioning. Are they able to go out and get groceries? Are they able to go out and have dinner with their friends? Um, And so uh, function is something that a lot of the IBD physicians actually um, hold very dearly um, and and really uh, are concerned about whether or not patients can accomplish that.
5: Any other
0: questions or... Yes. Uh, just a comment. I thought it was very interesting that they wanted, at the end of that questionnaire, a question included about, do you need information about payment? And yeah. what I'm hearing in that is they've got a lot of stresses in their life. You know, I know you're focused on, on certain things too, but how, how do I pay for this? <laughs> we talk about somebody else's paying for it, but they're really paying for it, you know, I mean, in their lives. Um, the idea of functioning, what are my goals, and am I achieving my life goals that I want? If they're not doing that, that's a huge stressor in their life, and then the symptom stress. So I- I'm hearing like they're dealing with this multifaceted mm-hmm. um, stressful situation, That, as medical folks, we're you know, focused on one, but it's, ours is such a tiny piece compared to their whole.
4: Thank you. All right, thank you.
2: So our next presenter is Dr. Megan Gallagher. Uh, she received her medical degree from Drexel University. We are lucky that um, Megan remains here for her fellowship in infectious disease. In particular, I appreciate the fact that she will be carrying pager
5: 2674. <laughs>
2: Those who don't know what that is, is the antibiotic approval pager.
5: <laughs> so Megan? <laughs>
6: Great. For some reason I can't get a title slide. So the title of my presentation is Pyogenic Liver Abscess Outpatient Outcomes Following Hospitalization and Intervention, Single-Center Experience 2007-2012. to 2012. So thank you all for coming. Uh, I've been working on this project since the beginning of my intern year, so I'm excited to present the past three years' worth of research to everybody. Our objectives for today are to define the population characteristics of patients treated with pyogenic liver abscesses at DHMC, to describe the complications and rates of readmissions in this patient population, and to examine the factors that lead to higher complication and readmission rates. So pyogenic liver abscesses have an annual incidence estimated at 3.6 per 100,000 patients in the United States. This CT image uh, shown here is a representative image of what a liver abscess looks like on CT imaging. The incidence overall is increasing, likely due to aging of the population, increase in hepatobiliary disease, and increase in biliary procedures. And liver abscesses can occur through either peritonitis related to some other intra-abdominal infection, an ascending biliary uh, infection, or seeding from an overall systemic infection. So there's a variety of ways in which they can occur. The mortality has decreased over time with an estimated case fatality rate of 5.6% in the United States. And this decrease in mortality is thought to be a combination in changes in drainage techniques and new broad-spectrum antibiotics. And in terms of the drainage techniques, currently percutaneous drainage or aspiration is preferred in simple, Mm -hmm. uncomplicated liver abscesses. And there's been a recent shift away from surgical drainage to percutaneous drainage. It's preferred currently because it's, there's less morbidity, fewer treatment failures, and more cost-effective than surgery has been shown in multiple studies. It's considered the first-line therapy at this point, which is believed to contribute to this decline in mortality. However, when it comes to large, multiple, or multiloculated liver abscesses, the optimal treatment is still debated. Some studies favor surgery, some favor percutaneous drainage. Overall, the majority of studies that have been done to date have really just focused on the inpatient setting and morbidity and mortality prior to discharge. But as we know, most patients with liver abscesses still have a significant disease burden at discharge and are not cured. They may require prolonged antibiotic courses, follow-up imaging, drain care, or other procedures, and are often seen by multiple specialists for a prolonged period of time. So our project chose to uh, add more information about outcomes following discharge. So we plan to look at ED visits, 30- and 90-day readmissions, and mortality both in and out of the hospital in order to better define how these patients do post-discharge. We obtained IRB approval and identified all admissions for liver abscesses at Dartmouth from 2007 to 2012 using an ICD-9 code. We then reviewed the charts to determine if a liver abscess actually was present and to record details of the admission and post-discharge care. Our statistical methods we used was a t-test for quantitative data and a chi-square test for qualitative data using a p-value of 0.05 to denote significance. And I have one caveat to add, which is that our um, statistics are not 100% complete, so we don't have p-values for all of our data quite yet. Um, We identified 188 patient admissions using these ICD-9 codes over a six-year period. We then excluded 24 of them. After a chart review, it turned out to show that they didn't actually have a liver abscess. In total, we had 164 patient admissions, which represented 125 unique patients, and we chose to report our results in reference to these 125 index patient admissions. We also chose to perform a sub-analysis on patients who had malignancy, as multiple prior studies had shown uh, high morbidity and mortality in this particular population. This is our uh, initial table, which demonstrates the overall baseline characteristics of our patients in our studies. The number in parentheses represent percentages for gender, race, and comorbidities and a range for age. Overall, um, we had a male predominance in our study, which is consistent with prior reported data. Um, Patients with malignancies were significantly older than those without, which is perhaps unsurprising. Uh, The patients were overwhelmingly white, also unsurprising given our patient population, but just to note that other studies have shown a fairly high incidence of this disease in Asian or Pacific Islander populations. The most common comorbidity that we found (coughs) was malignancy, followed by biliary disease, although there is no statistically significant difference um, when it comes to biliary disease between malignancy and non-malignancy groups. As you can see, the only statistically significant piece of data we have here is for age. This table here demonstrates inpatient characteristics and interventions, with the numbers in parentheses representing percentages. The majority of patients underwent percutaneous drainage, which is consistent with our current trends, and we found no significant difference between the type of intervention received between patients with and without malignancy. A majority of patients did not require uh, biliary drainage. How, excuse me, however, uh, there was a trend towards more non-malignancy patients requiring cholecystectomy and more malignancy patients requiring biliary stenting, although this did not reach significance. Abscess size, unfortunately, was not available in all patients, as it was not reported in all of the charts. Um, and we did break the abscess size down into less than 5 centimeters and greater than 5 centimeters, as prior studies had shown this to be a breakpoint in determining the difference between a small abscess and a large abscess. And about two-thirds of our patients had single abscesses, while the remainder had multiple abscesses, ranging anywhere from two to numbers in the double digits. We have uh, more inpatient data uh, continued on this table. Uh, As you can see, microbiologic data was available for the majority of patients, with only 23 patients not having defined microbiology. Uh, And the majority of patients actually had polymicrobial cultures. The average length of stay was, was uh, longer approaching significance in patients uh, without malignancy. The majority of patients were discharged on oral antibiotics, uh, with a minority of patients actually completing their full antibiotic course in the hospital and not requiring antibiotics upon discharge. And we found no statistical significance between the malignancy and non-malignancy patients. A majority of patients were discharged with a drain still in place with, again, no significant difference between our two groups. This chart shows uh, the uh, interventions broken down by time. As you can see, the number of patients treated for a liver abscess did increase rather dramatically in 2012, which is unclear exactly why this happened. It could just be random variation fluctuating from year to year, or we may be seeing an increase in patients referred to our facility rather than other facilities in northern New England. This chart breaks the uh, interventions over time down by percentages, and you can see that the percentage of patients who receive surgery has been uh, decreasing over time, while the number of the percentage of patients receiving percutaneous interventions has been increasing. <coughs> I do want to point out this one patient in 2012 who was made uh, comfort measures only shortly after admission and actually did not receive a formal intervention. And these charts show the breakdown of patients discharged with and without drains and then the breakdown of treatment interventions in total. This table is looking at our outpatient outcomes for our patients with the numbers in parentheses representing range for the length of antibiotic course and number of follow-up appointments and then percentages for patients who have seen a a medical specialist at Dartmouth and the outpatient treatments they received. Overall, you can see there's a very wide range and length of antibiotic courses with a few patients approaching or exceeding a year in total antibiotics. We found no significant difference in the duration of antibiotic course or the number of follow-up appointments. As you can see, most of these patients ended up following, with, following up with surgery, IR, or ID as the most common um, specialist they saw here, and about 50% of patients with malignancy followed by hemonc here at Dartmouth. The most common outpatient treatment was uh, drain removal followed by drain exchange with a small minority of patients receiving other interventions. This chart shows um, more of the outpatient outcomes (coughs) continued uh, with the number in parentheses showing unique patients for ED visits and readmissions and percentages for 120-day mortality. As you can see, overall, this patient population had a very high rate of ED visits and readmissions, multiple patients requiring having multiple ED visits and multiple readmissions. We found that the patients with malignancy had a significantly higher incidence of ED visits. And overall, we also found that the mortality from liver abscesses was low in both groups. This chart is just breaking down complications related to both antibiotics and PIC lines, and you can see that overall few patients had these complications. In terms of complications from antibiotics, this includes allergic reactions, side effects, and also acquisition of C. difficile infections. <coughs> this table was a univariate analysis of risk factors, um, comparing patients who required um, ED visits or readmissions to patients who did not. The number in parentheses represents a range for age and percentage for comorbidities, inpatient interventions, and biliary drainage. The patients who were readmitted or had ED visits had a significantly higher percentage (laughs) of malignancy than those who did not. There were also more patients uh, with biliary disease, although that number did not quite reach significance. Uh, Patients that underwent surgery had a slightly higher rate of readmissions or ED visits, but overall there was no significant difference between these two groups. In terms of interventions. Further um, analysis of our univariate analysis um, comparing our two patient groups. numbers in parentheses represent range in abscess size and percentage in microbiology, discharge antibiotics, and discharge with drains. Um, and the abscess size is out of the uh, 98 patients in which abscess size was known. Overall, you can see there's a fairly little difference between these two groups in terms of abscess size, discharge antibiotics. Patients discharged with a drain did have a higher rate of readmission in ED visits, but again, not quite approaching significance. And interestingly, uh, shorter lengths of stay did not increase the rates of readmission <coughs> for ED visits, as seen here. Uh, Further, of our table of our univariate analysis, numbers in parentheses representing percentages. Again, um, shorter lengths of antibiotic courses also did not uh, increase the rates of readmission or ED visits. And there is no difference between these two groups based on number of follow-up appointments. I did chose to take a closer look at the microbiologic data. Um, and comparing readmissions by patients who had known uh, microbiology versus unknown microbiology. As you can see, there's no difference in ED visits, but there is um, quite a bit of a difference um, in 30-day readmissions or 90-day readmissions. And also taking a closer look at readmissions compared by abscess number, and again, patients with multiple abscesses have more ED visits and more readmissions. So in conclusion, our data shows that patients with liver abscesses have an overall high rate of ED visits and readmissions, with over 90% of patients uh, having either an ED visit or readmission within 90 days. And just for comparison's sake, our hospital-wide goal for readmission rate is 8%. So this is a (coughs) fairly high-risk group. And this uh, data also shows that patients with malignancy have an even higher rate um, suggesting that this group warrants closer attention and very careful discharge planning <coughs> Despite this high readmission rate there were some factors that seemed to lower the rates of ED visits in readmission Even though we did not quite achieve significant single abscesses lowered all rates having defined microbiology lowered readmission rates and discharge without drains in place lowered all rates And this suggests that these are some areas to be aware of as we take care of these patients, Um, maybe considering uh, trying to get drainage or aspiration to better clarify what the microbiology data is, or considering paying closer attention to a discharge plan in a patient with multiple abscesses. Our 120-day mortality rate was 4% from liver abscesses, which is consistent with prior reported rates. Some of our limitations include that this was a retrospective study um, and also that this was a single center study so that we weren't able to capture outpatient follow-up that occurred at non dartmouth sites. As a result, our record of rehospitalizations and mortality may actually be an underestimate and we may be missing patients. The timing of drain removal was unclear. Um, Many of these patients had their drains fall out at home um, and depending on who was managing the drain care, it was often unclear when the drain was taken out. And then, because this is a complicated disease with lots of (coughs) complex factors that involve in treatment decisions, we are unable to completely eliminate confounding factors. Some next steps moving forward to consider um, would be getting data for subsequent years. This could give us some information to determine if this increase seen in 2012 um, is supported over time. Are we really seeing more patients with liver abscesses at our facility? Or is this just random variation? Alternatively, looking back at the years before 2007, may give us more data on the outcomes following surgery. as the, Since the overall number of patients who received surgical intervention was low, going back in time when the surgical interventions were more common may allow us to compare the data between surgery and percutaneous interventions. Um, and then overall, having a larger patient group for us to study may allow us to get enough data to see if Um, We've achieved significance in any of these areas where we see a trend, but not true significance We also could consider looking at the timing of the first outpatient follow-up visit to Determine if there's a relationship between that and readmission rates how quickly do patients need to be seen as an outpatient? And then also looking at the length that the drains are left in to determine if longer or shorter durations have better outcomes There's no real data on how long drains should be left in for, and practice patterns vary quite dramatically depending on who is managing drains. I'd like to thank uh, Mary Margaret Anders, uh, who was my mentor for this project and uh, extremely helpful throughout this whole thing, and Tor Tosteson for assisting us with our statistical analysis.
0: very helpful to me clinically as a hospitalist. Um, I feel like um, liver abscesses are rare and they're very scary to patients because patients feel so sick and uh, they don't get a whole lot of great information about what is happening and why it's happening and what the heck do I need this drain for. So anyways, I feel like I can now say, you know, given the past seven years, here's information about what may happen to you and complications you may experience and the likelihood you may leave with a drain and the fact that... You're going to have a bumpy road for a while, but you're going to have a good outcome in 96% of cases. Um, so, so that's really helpful. Um, I, I guess um, my, my question is, um, I'm wondering if there's some sort of way to account for disease severity or case mix index so that you could actually determine um, this is the right, right? It's, surgery is not the right treatment anymore, this you know, drain for this number of days is the right treatment. I, I think one of the things that I've been challenged by as a hospitalist is that each Uh, specialist seems to treat pyogenic liver abscesses a little bit differently, and and I think some of that is probably because of their experience, Mm -hmm. and some of that is probably because the number of abscesses, the size of abscesses, the culture data, the stuff that you've you've talked about. I, I wonder whether there's anything in the literature or whether you have any idea of a way to say this liver abscess has a high risk of complications or some, some way of putting the picture together and saying this is a severe case or this is a less severe case so that you could then compare less severe cases and more severe cases and determine what the optimal treatment is for these types. So
6: there's a lot of, lot of studies uh, looking at, and this is just a sampling of my references, at what is the best treatment, and it's all over the map. Some people say, oh, the best treatment is percutaneous intervention. Some people say surgery is the best intervention. I found one paper that said, heck, Partial hepatectomy, like just taking out a full lobe of the liver is the best surgical intervention for large abscesses. So we really don't have good data to support this. And it was hard looking at this stuff because obviously, at our, you can see at our institution, percutaneous intervention is by far the most common and we don't have a lot of surgical data, at least from the time period I looked at, so it would be helpful to get more information.
5: Um, great job um, I uh, was wondering if there's any uh, group in the literature um, kind of dovetailing on this uh, uh, concept where surgery is really what they do um, and maybe they have a database like yours that you can compare um, you know these differences because you're right there's a, there's a bias toward percutaneous uh, management here um, is that something that you think is out there or, or it's too heterogeneous?
6: It's, it's really, I think it's too heterogeneous. Um, part of it is looking at the time period, um, you know, as you can see, one of the papers I looked at had 42 years of data, but obviously 42 years of data encompasses the whole rise of IR. And generally speaking, um, what I found, small abscesses tend to be drained by IR. Larger ones may be more by surgery, but it's really, institu- I think it's really institution dependent. I think it's really surgeon dependent, too.
5: To what extent might the outcomes be influenced by who's doing the procedure? In other words, are there some, if you had a idiot surgeon and a brilliant surgeon, that determine the result? you notice know,
6: any when another one. Didn't have the, I didn't look that closely into who was doing the operations versus who was doing the procedures. Um, it would be interesting to take a look at that. Um, I have a feeling that the number of patients doing liver surgeries at our institution is small, um, whereas we probably have a larger number of interventionalists um, in radiology who can do percutaneous drainage. It'd be something to look at in more detail. Dr.
5: Yeah, in discussing the... Um, The high rate of readmission, you mentioned looking at the uh, discharge management allocation. But have we looked at our discharge protocol? For example, do we have a uniform standard for sending somebody home when they're ready? And the second thing would be, is there any correlation between how long they're here and the rate of readmission?
6: So there is no uniform protocol. It's really based on when the team feels that the um, patient is ready for discharge. I do have some data um, so we broke down length of stay as patients who stayed in the hospital less than five days versus more than five days um, And there didn't seem to be a difference between very short length of stays versus longer ones in terms of readmission rates um, We could obviously do more more um, Analysis of kind of the overall length of stay But it's at least the preliminary stuff. We had looked at didn't seem to support a difference
5: So were you able to look at the reason for the ED visits or the readmissions? So one of the things you seem to find is that the malignant group had an increased number of visits, but do you know whether those visits had anything to do with their liver abscess or some other complication of their malignancy or their treatment?
6: The vast majority uh, were due to the liver abscess itself. Were due to recurrent infections, um, abdominal pain, complications from PIC lines, antibiotics. Um, there were. A, I didn't exclude necessarily the admissions that seemed to be less likely to do to liver abscess because it would be hard to say that it's truly not due to it altogether. But I will say that the vast majority were clearly unresolved infection.
3: Yeah, and so thinking about what we could do differently given the data that you presented, you know, one of the sort of interesting uh, nibbles is right on the slide that you have here, which is this discharge with the drain. My, um, I agree with Hillary, these are relatively rare events. I've care, managed a couple, you know, since I've been here. Um, but the one thing that I've noticed is that it seems complete voodoo as to how long the drain should be left in, with some people saying leave it in for a long time, and other people like take it out right away, and then whenever it falls out, it falls out, and all sorts of other sort of crazy plans. And so, um, you know, I mean, it obviously makes some sense to leave it in for a while because you want to make sure that the that the pus is completely drained. Um, But I wonder whether we're leaving these drains in for too long. That we sort of leave them in thinking that we're actually doing people good. And although you don't have statistical significance here, it suggests, I mean, these data somewhat suggest at least that um, that leaving the drains in for a longer period of time may actually be uh, be a bad thing. So it's interesting.
2: You know, Ollie, it's interesting because I was just talking to uh, Mary Morgan about this in line with her <coughs> comments about the protocol, the protocol for discharge planning, because as often honestly. You know, we try to reduce our remission rate, too, and in terms of the steps going to the discharge planning, that is, well, a patient educated enough to know how to flush on their own, and whether VNA coming in is actually an issue, if pain is going to be an issue, how much removal, et cetera. And the duration, that's, you know, we also discussed about well, how long you put this in and the practice variation in the ID itself, that is how long do you extend the duration of antibiotic therapy and so forth, and what follow up. And um, IR might not be in line with VP imaging, where ID might be. So there's a lot of
5: and issue that we need to address this with. Jay, um, Have you looked at this data from the perspective of the microbiology in terms of the organism that's causing these abscesses and in terms of stratifying data based on organisms and are some better prognosis or some, you know, last longer and have fewer complications?
6: so, we didn't look at the individual microbiology broken down because it is such a wide variation. Um, I did try to see if we did have a large percentage of patients with multidrug resistant organisms. It turns out we don't. We only had one patient with VRE, only two patients with an extended spectrum beta lactamase producing organism. So, it would, was, I think the data the, is too small to make a whole lot of details about it. Um, I did find it interesting that patients who in which we knew the microbiology seemed it's, our data seemed to suggest they did a little bit better than patients in which we didn't know it, but in terms of breaking it down more than that, it was hard to say. and then obviously the largest pers- proportion is polymicrobial, so there's a whole lot going into that. Well,
2: thank you all for coming..